you know, I'm 18, 19 at this time, and I'm, I'm trying to talk to like some A&R from Epic or like, you, you know, someone from Universal and they're calling and I'm trying to like act like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. And you know, looking back on it now, I, like if I was talking to, to myself at that point as like a, a guy on the label side talking to some fucking 19 year old kid that like thinks he knows everything, I would have been like, fuck these guys, what the fuck is this? Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Big Break Podcast, where we explore the stories of the unsung heroes in the music business who operate largely behind the scenes, writing and producing the music that we all love. I'm your host, Anthony Bruno of Royalty Exchange, and today we did something a little different. I interviewed Anthony Marquis, who, if you don't know, joined Royalty Exchange over the summer as a partner, but he got his start in the business as an artist, and later as a manager with Crush Management, and later still founded the indie uh, record label Commission Records. Uh, he's taken a very artist-first approach through all these roles, and he's guided the careers of such artists as Tyga and Little Dicky, along many others. What's really interesting about all this is that Ant, as we call him, got his education in the business in a very hands-on way. During his days in a metal band, he did all the work. He booked the shows, he negotiated deals, made merch, handled the marketing, and so on. And all of that's really led to this artist-first approach that I've mentioned to um, all the roles that he's ever had. So we talk a little bit about that. But what we really get into in this conversation that I thought was particularly interesting was his thoughts on uh, what we call drive or motivation or commitment. It's something that you don't learn in school, and it's kind of you either have it or you don't. So uh, this this idea of drive really forms the foundation of his work worldview as you'll soon hear so let's get into it here's a big break enjoy so yes thank you with us today is a, a very special guest anthony martini who is not only a uh, uh has a long history in the music business as an artist and a manager and whatnot but he also happens to be my current boss here at royalty exchange so uh, that is not going to get him off the hook by any means of any of the questions that I am about to ask. I want to assure everyone that that is the case. So, Ant, welcome. Thank you. I mean, that, you know, that's obviously the that's that's the angle I played to in order to get on the get on this podcast. You know, I had to I had to sort of you know push my way in and, thre- and threaten your job in order to be a guest on here. So, yeah, but but I have to, but I am fully identified for for any uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. any questions that I ask going forward. I'm taking my my employee hat off and the interviewer hat is firmly on. Exactly. All right, cool. So um, basically this is, you know, as we, as we uh, do with other, all other artists, this is going to be the same thing that we do as we, as we talk with those as I am talking with you. Uh, But, you know, generally the way I've been doing this all year, um, or at least all summer uh, with these things is just real quick. How have you been sort of handling the whole shutdowns, the, uh, the quarantines, the, uh, the lockdown environment so far, have you been, um, adversely affected by that professionally or anything like that? Or is it just uh, par for the course? Um, I think it's just par for the course, honestly. Uh, you know, especially being in, in the music business and any sort of like entertainment business, you're, you, you know, you're sort of uh, used to rolling with the punches, whatever they may be, because there's always changes and things happening. And if you aren't able to adapt, you, you're probably not going to last in the business too long. So, you know, it's it, 2020 being a, a year a little crazier than than others but uh you know overall listen man you figure out ways to adapt and and, and adjust exactly exactly so where, where are you calling from today you in uh you're on the east coast right yeah i'm in good old garden state new jersey dirty jersey um jersey shore area from my home office 
All right. And is that, that's where you're from originally, right? That is, yes. Born and raised in New Jersey. And never, never got out. So, um, all right. So let's, let's take I, it. Let's I, got go. out, I got out for a little while, but it called me back. You know, I, called I, you back. I, I lived in Manhattan for a little while and I actually felt like a little bit of a sellout living in Manhattan. And then, uh, you know, got back to my Jersey roots. Okay. Well, let's go back to those Jersey roots then. So tell us a little bit about, you know, just how you initially not, not even got into like making music or playing music, but just initially got into music as being something that you were interested in even. Right. And, and the reason I ask this is because with most people that we talk with, like every, I, most people like music, I, I, like me, like I listen to music, I enjoy consuming music, but at no point did I really ever feel that music was something that I was going to create or be a part of in that, in that level. So I just want to take a step before you kind of got into the thought about maybe actually participating in, in the creation of music. Like when did you first catch the music bug, I guess? Uh, always was sort of into music. Like my, uh, you know, my mom was a big music fan, you know, all different types of genres. So growing up, I listened to everything from, you know, like rock, like, you know, like, classic rock to the current rock at that time to like soul and eighties. And so it kind of like ran the gamut. My mom, you know, had pretty eclectic taste. So I was exposed to that early on and just, just liked it. You know, you know, like I, I enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed stories, I think too, like lyric, you know, lyrics and kind of getting into all that. So, you know, I've always, always been a big music fan. That's interesting. And when did you did, did you gravitate to any particular instrument or or maybe it was singing? I don't know. But like, what what did you gravitate towards when you when you wanted to start actually you know dabbling with the creation part? Well, for I guess I, I you know early on I, I actually have memories of like I guess everyone does it, but you know like singing in the shower or, or like imagining myself on stage in the shower as like a little kid, and I had no reason like I didn't really have an aspiration to be uh, a musician at that point it was just sort of like just felt (laughs) like natural it was like a natural I guess like dream in a way um and then uh eventually I the first instrument I picked up was was guitar um because I in school I had some friends who you know they had older brothers and older brothers were like in bands like these heavy metal bands and you know by default like the younger brothers always want to be like their older brothers so they started picking up instruments and um you know i, I was kind of running with that crowd and and so i didn't want to you know be the odd man out that didn't know how to play an instrument so i started i started learning guitar and how did you learn did you just uh, just self-taught did you take any lessons this is before the internet i'm guessing so it wasn't like you could just go on youtube and figure it out yeah I mean, mostly self-taught, but uh, luckily I, I actually went to a school. So uh, like around like fifth grade, I, I, I was in I was in really kind of shitty schools for a while because um, I grew up in a shitty area. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, around fifth grade, I got recommended to be put into a, a gifted and talented program. And so I went to sort of like a special school where um, they had better funding. It was more of like a, you know, like a, uh, I don't know, like a charter type school. And there was, there was great arts programs, you know, from, like, I actually got, I actually got into it for visual arts, but then, you know, they had a, a great music teacher there, Mr. Corley. I remember him. He, 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 uh, he used to let us sort of, uh, instead of our lunch break, we, there was a little soundproof room in the, in the gym that, 
had, you know, a couple of writing rooms with like guitars and keyboards and stuff. And so instead of eating lunch, we would just go in the, in the writing room and just mess around. And, you know, he, he really kind of helped push along the, uh, you know, the, just the, the vision of being able to play an instrument and be able to practice it and kind of like stoke that, uh, that ambition. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, luckily I was able to, I was exposed to actually even had a MIDI class, which at the time, like this was probably like 1994, something like that. And, you know, we had Mac computers with, with like, uh, 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 I think it was logic or like a version of logic at the time, like early on and keyboards. And, and I actually had a class. I remember the teacher too, Mr. Bergamato. Um, and, and like would sit in there, you know, kind of like there was a lot of times I was trying to like not go to certain classes and I just hang out in the music rooms and actually was, you know, trying to make beats and stuff like on the, on these computers. Cause it was like all these programs and, and we were just exposed to a lot of, a lot of different things, which I think, you know, it's really important. Even now, I, I guess even thinking back, if I wasn't exposed to that sort of stuff or didn't have those opportunities, maybe my life would have turned out different. You know what I mean? So I think it, music is, is, is really important to have in schools. And, you know, I know a lot of uh, budgets and funding being taken away from music, but I think, you know, that's, that's definitely a, a terrible thing. And, and, and music, you know, is, it's a great outlet for kids. And it, you know, oftentimes it, it's a, it's a way to kind of like expand your mind, but also it could be a way out for people. So, you know, it actually was really important in my life to have music programs in school. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, I was in music programs myself. Again, I, I was more like a traditional band. I actually, believe it or not, played tuba, which, you know, is like the coolest thing, obviously, in the world, right? But um, but it was, you know, it, it, it exposes you, it, it lets you kind of uh, scratch that creative itch a little bit. It exposes you to different kinds of music, for in my case, classical, which which is stuck with me forever. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And so, and then everyone thinks that, oh, you don't need music programs. How many of these kids are actually be musicians? And I always think that's not the point. I mean, some might, yeah. but the idea is that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of expressing creativity and like knowing math is just like knowing how to use a hammer, but knowing what to build with it is sort of where the creative component comes in. And that's, I think, what music programs can provide. So exactly. I've always been a big, big fan. But you actually did end up, you know, you know, obviously going into music, you know, more from a, you know, from a career perspective. So like, what were the early stages of that? Like, what was your first band? Um, it's just kind of, again, the same kind of group of friends that were all playing instruments. We just, we formed, uh, just like a joke band. Um, and we wrote a song, I think like one of the first songs I ever remember writing was a song called fish, fish stew. <laughs> and it was just like D G yeah, like the, the G D C chord progression. It was like the first progression you learned. I'm like, Oh, these sound good together. And you just, you know, you just start making up stupid lyrics. And, you know, we made up a song called Fish Stew. And, uh, you know, it just was cool. Like, it, it was like, yo, we made a fucking song. Like, this is, and it sounds good. Like, it, and it probably didn't sound good at all. It was like, you know, we, but it sounded good to you. And it, it didn't sound like terrible. Like, you, you, you got the idea that, okay, I can have something in my head and then I can put it out and it sounds like something. Exactly. And, and so that sort of, you know, continued over the course of, you know, from like fifth grade into high school, just different kind of bands, some more jokey than others. And then eventually starting to, you know, as, as you get more serious about things and you're spending all this time, you know, like learning and practicing and all that, like it, it becomes more serious. And so, and you're getting older. So we, we started forming bands that were a little more serious and more so, you know, and then eventually, um, 
when we were, it was like my freshman year in high school, you know, we, we formed a band that actually started to get some traction and it still wasn't like a serious, like career thought at that point, you know, because I was actually more into sports and, and was a really good uh, football player. And so I thought, yeah, at some point I was going to have to give up the band and just go to college and play football. Um, and, but I ended up getting injured my senior year, like the last game, my senior year. And then I had like, you know, scholarship offers, different things that sort of fell through because I wasn't able to play for another year. It was like all this shit that ended up happening, um, from like a sports perspective. And I just looked at that as, uh, sort of the universe putting me on the path to being, you know, focused on music. Cause it was getting to the point where I was either going to have to choose, you know, quitting the band or or quitting football. And I, you know, I wasn't going to quit football because that was like my first real like love. You know I mean? That was the thing that I really thought was, was going to be it. Um, but then that sort of got taken away. So by default I was like, Oh shit. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to focus on the band more. And that, that became like a full time. I don't really do anything like for fun. You know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> like, like if I start doing something, like it's because I want to be really good at it and, and successful. So, you know, I just threw myself into it and, and started focusing on building up the band. And we, you know, we, we started to get traction and uh, developing a fan base and record labels calling. And, you know, so at that point it was like, Oh, maybe this can be a career. All right. So let me talk about that just a little bit. Cause we're going to circle back to some of these uh, points, I think uh, later on, but yeah. um, this idea that, that, so football was a, was a path that was potentially going to take you to, to college, right? To, to school, degree, all that, all that sort of sort of thing. And when that fell through, was it was it like, oh, that was your only way you could you can, you know, get to college and have like a more you know career type career? Or and then and then when that fell through, you had it you had to pick music instead. Or like, how did that work exactly? You yeah, I mean, basically, like, like I, you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to afford college if I didn't get a scholarship. So if if, if I didn't get a scholarship, I wasn't going. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I ended up still getting a scholarship, but it was like. A, you know, like a division three school. And it just wasn't exciting to me. Cause I knew, you know, like I was getting recruited by like division one programs and, and like, you know, I went on all these visits to like West Virginia and Syracuse and Duke. And, you know I mean? It was like big time college football. And then I ended up going to this fucking division three school and having to wait a year. And it was just kind of like not inspiring anymore. Um, and you know, the music side again was, was starting to to move. And so I, I just felt like, let me just f- focus on the music because th- there seems to be more upside there at this point. And that's what part of the upside part is what I'm asking about, because I mean, you mentioned you sort of grew up in, I don't know, like not as great an area. So you're, you're, you're probably looking to, you know, advance where you are, you know, your station in life, so to speak yeah. and things like that. And, and like music, it seems like such a, it, it can seem like a, like a big crapshoot. Like it's not exactly the career you get into for like the sure paycheck right whereas you go to college you get a degree you kind of get a regular regular job you know this kind of stuff so i'm just kind of wondering how you decided was that was did it feel like a dice roll to to put college aside and go in and and, and pursue the music side of things or not i mean to me if it would that would scare the shit out of me so yeah. that's why i asked not really i don't know like i guess that's part of being young and dumb and like sort of like <laughs> naive to how hard things are. you know like and, and that's i actually still kind of approach a lot of stuff like that like i i I really don't think anything is that hard. You know what I mean? Like, even if it is, and, and like, I try and keep that <laughs> naivety about things because I, I feel like, you know, really, if you break things down into steps and kind of take small pieces, like 
you, I, I truly believe like you can accomplish anything. So, you know, like, yeah, music may seem like a crapshoot, but again, part, partly being like cocky and, and young and kind of like naive, you're like, ah, like, yeah, it's a crapshoot because everyone else sucks and I'm good. And that's why, you know, like, <laughs> so um, it didn't seem that crazy. And also the thing about it is like college, you know, I could always go back. Like that's not going to go anywhere. If, if, you know, I, at that point I could say like, all right, well, let me take some time to really focus on the music side of things. And if it doesn't work out, I, I could always go back to college if I wanted to, um, even though I didn't intend. All right. So let's, let's talk about the focus on music side of things. First of all, what was the, what was the name of this band? Band was called E-Town Concrete. And that's like, okay, so I don't always do this, but like, where did that come from? <laughs> what does that name mean? <laughs> you know, listen, again, we were, we were just young kids in high school and, you know, very uh, literal and obvious thing. It was like, oh, we're starting a heavy metal band. Like, we need something that sounds hard. Okay, concrete. <laughs> like, we're like, yeah, that's awesome. But then I was like, yeah, but concrete's so like generic. We got to, you know, kind of put our own twist on it. And so we were from... Elizabeth, New Jersey, which the nickname is E-Town. So we, I was like, we should be E-Town Concrete. And so, okay. you know, at the time we, we were kids in like eighth, ninth grade. And we're like, oh, it's so awesome. It's hard. That's so hard. And, you know, it, it really just sounds like a construction company from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but I think the, the, the thing is like the stories behind titles are sometimes always the most interesting. Things, uh, yeah. so I, I, was, I, I always like after it started to become more serious. I was like, I always regretted the name. I thought it was like the corniest, stupidest name after, you know, after a while, but we sort of were stuck with it. And after a while you, you you lean into it, you know, you're like, all right, fuck it. Like, let's just, let's just be this. (laughs) Right. I mean, listen, Dave Grohl always says, if I had known it would have taken off, I never would have named it Foo Fighters. Like he's he's on record saying that. Right. So I think it's the same thing. So, all right. So you throw yourself into it. You guys are, I don't know, maybe you're out of high school or you're still in the late parts of high school, but like, explain to me that the band's getting some, some traction. What does that look like? What does that mean? Um, well, we, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're still in high school and at this point we're probably, uh, like seniors or or like junior, senior year when it started to like, actually, actually, yeah, it was probably senior year. But so, you know, at this point we're playing, we went from just practicing in, you know, basements and just trying to write songs to, we made a little demo tape and then, you know, kind of got passed around in this like scene. We were kind we were in like the, the New York hardcore, New Jersey hardcore scene, which is, you know, more like punk, like more punk hardcore vibe than like metal. It wasn't, it was not like when you think of heavy metal, you think of like long hair, like eighties type dudes. Hard, the hardcore scene is like punk rock dudes or, or like straight edge kids or, you know, it's like, they're like, destroying each other in mosh pit it's not like the mosh pit where everyone just kind of pushes each other around this is like people doing kung fu moves and fucking flipping off stages kicking people in the face and you know it's just like a a much more aggressive kind of like street style of of hard rock um and so people started passing our demo around in 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 like the local scene and and everyone was like oh this is really good like who and like they couldn't believe that we were like these 17 year old kids um and it started you know people started to to like hype us up really like, Oh, you guys should play a show, play a show. So, you know, we ended up playing some local shows and, and, and saw that there was people there that like knew some of the words and they didn't, and it started to become like, Oh, this is, this could be real. And so as we got our, our driver's licenses, my, so my (laughs) first, my first car actually 
I was the one that sort of like, I was always the business guy in the band. Um, and so, you know, like I controlled all like the, the, you know, the operations of everything. And like, I made the demos, I booked the shows, I made the flyers, I, I, you know, all that stuff. So my first car, I mean, I, not like I could get a cool car anyway, but my first car ended up being like, a, a, I got a Dodge Caravan, um, mini, like a minivan basically so that we could play shows and transport our gear. And like, I would just be the, you know, it would be kind of like the band van, but I, I kind of got the a little bit of money from the band to chip in to pay for the monthly payment. And then that was my car. So I had this minivan at 17 years old. I'm driving around the Dodge, you know, caravan minivan. Um, Look at all hardcore. <laughs> exactly. And so, you got to get you know, a few bumper stickers for that thing, I think, just to kind of keep the credit. Well, actually, I got rims for I got these chrome rims. <laughs> so like, I had this minivan and, and like I bought these like chrome, like mag looking rims. So I, and I, you know, like I tinted out all the windows, but it, it's just like the most ridiculous thing now. But I thought it was so cool at the time, you know, but it, it, it wasn't looking back. Um, and so we would just like try and book shows. So I, I would get the local like newspaper, which is, you know, sounds like fucking 1960 at this point, but like there was a, a local like music paper called the Aquarian um, in Jersey. And I would just go get it and then look in the back, all the advertisements for shows at all the venues. And I would just call the venues and try and get on opening slots with other bands. And, you know, th- at the time you, you think that's the way you do it. It's, it never works that way. Um, cause they're like, you know, these, these tours are already booked. We already have openers. Fuck you. Who are you? You know, like it's whatever, but you kind of, you, you learn along the way, but then every once in a while, like I would convince someone to let us open and, you know, we started playing some shows and, and I would start to like go on message boards and try and find venues in other areas. So we, we would kind of try and map out as many shows as we could do in a weekend in like a drivable radius and be back for school on Monday. So like Friday night, we would go play a show in like Baltimore, which is like a three hour drive. And then we'd go to like Virginia and then, you know, come back and maybe play like Philly and then go home, you know, and then, or we'd go to, I mean, one time we drove to Detroit for one show and drove home. So, you know, like we were, <laughs> we were like in it to win it, trying to, you know, just trying to make it work and, and trying to any opportunity that we could get, we, we, we took advantage of and, and, you know, tried to keep building. And so that could, so I'm sorry, but you're doing all this stuff yourself. I mean, at any point was it, was that just out of necessity? Cause you guys weren't actually bringing enough to actually hire someone to kind of, who knew, who quote knew what they were doing to do that kind of work for you. Or was it always something that you were going to take lead on yourself um, in terms of, uh, you know, the booking and all the, all the logistics and things? Yeah. I mean, no one, we, we weren't, popular enough or big enough for anyone to care yet at that point so no you know like no one's gonna work for free and also we were like unsigned independent you know so if you have a record label or things like that it's easy to get a booking agent or a manager because they see like there's already some some business or some way to make money you know when you're doing it all on your own no one you know no one wants to take that step with you so it was out it was it was out of necessity but um but then i i learned to sort of love the role, you know, and, and, and just kept going pretty much our whole career, even after we started becoming more successful and like actually making money and, you know, negotiating with record labels, all that kind of shit. Um, it's really what taught me. It's, it's what taught me the business. Did you ever end up signing a record deal? Uh, yeah. Well, the, at the very end of our career, like the last, so we put out like a few albums, uh, all independently. And, you know, at, at one point early on, 
well, not early on, but er, like our, before our first album, there was, there was actually a bunch of label interest. Um, and so, you know, I'm 18, 19 at this time. And I'm, t- I'm trying to talk to like some A&R from Epic or like, you, you know, someone from Universal and they're calling and I'm trying to like act like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. And you know, looking back on it now, I, like I must have, like if I was talking to myself at that point as like a, a guy on the label side and talking to some fucking 19 year old kid that like thinks he knows everything, I would have been like, fuck these guys. What the fuck is it? You know, but at the time I, I you know, I thought, I bought Donald Passman's book, everything you need, need to know about the music business. I, I learned about contracts. I learned about, all, so I'm, I'm like trying to negotiate with these major labels, like a licensing deal. And I'm like, yeah, we don't, you know, we want to own our own masters and uh, like, I want a licensing deal. And, and you know, I want a dollar a record. I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm, I don't even know how impossible that is. And, you know, I basically got like laughed off the phone, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, but there was still, but like, cause we were building a fan base and starting to sell out shows. So labels would come to shows and stuff, but I was almost too smart for my own good. Oh, hold on, sorry. I was almost, uh, too smart for my own good at that point. And, uh, which is something I learned after the fact that, you know, that it's, it's better to find ways to make deals than to like be too difficult early on, like over leverage yourself in the, in the beginning and, and not get a deal done. Um, you could always sort of tweak deals with success or, or as you go, but you know, you, you got to get in the door first. And I think that was, you know, that was a lesson I learned early on. You, <laughs> just get in the door, <laughs> you know, but don't, don't, don't shoot yourself in the foot before you even get there. That's interesting. We're going to come back to that in a second. So, um, so anyway, I want to kind of, uh, forward this along to you when, when he decided that the that the band thing was going to work out because you shifted into other roles in the music business and i want to kind of get a sense of how that transition happened here so you yeah. know you're already doing all this work uh as the as the sort of the, the de facto manager and booking agent and everything else mm-hmm. of the band um when did you guys at what point at what point was it was there like okay you know we're hanging this up and, and it's time to you know plan b or whatever um it, it was uh so around 2001, maybe that was sort of our last like tour. It was, it was on our last tour. Um, and this was right when we, so we finally broke down and signed a record deal. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the first like few albums, it, it, we did licensing deals and ended up actually having some decent success and, and making decent money because I, I negotiated us like a dollar record, but then at a certain plateau, we would get $2 a record, then $3 a record. And so it was like a kind of escalating, uh, like, a you know, royalties or net profit split. Um, so even though we didn't sell a ton of records, we actually made decent money. Um, but then at the end, it was sort of like our last swing at like trying to, trying to really just do it in a big way and, uh, ended up signing a record deal to this company, Razor and Tie, who, uh-huh. uh, who at the time was known for making like eighties compilation records and like all sorts of like, just those, those infomercials you used to see like, Oh, like that's what I don't, 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 they do, uh, don't they do. That's what I call music. Isn't that them? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I call music. Well now okay. they're, I mean, they, they became a huge, you know, they got a huge valuation off doing kids pop. That was like sort of kids like, pop was the other one. I was going to say that, but I was afraid I was going to get it wrong. I didn't want to be. No, no, yeah. so, so that's what they were known for. But then, <laughs> you know, they, they were looking to get into uh, some original music and signing some acts. And, and, and so 
you know, <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. sorry. I'm just having a problem seeing you and the kids bop sort of aligned a little bit on this one. That's L- a- listen, man. I, like, when I went to go visit the the offices, you know, I got a whole box full of CDs that are just like, yeah, it was kids bop volume one through <laughs> seventeen, like you know, going south jams volume one and two. But you know, at the time, like they they were a label. They had money. You know, I mean, they had they had funding to put into marketing promotion. They were giving us a decent advance. They had, I, you know, to me is like they had infrastructure, they had a staff, they were going to give us a better deal than some of the other labels that we were talking to. But, you know, like it was, it was bigger than what we were doing. So it made sense. Um, and we ended up signing the deal, got like $120,000 advance, which was, I mean, that's, that was a big advance for, you yeah. know, for some like, relatively obscure band from new jersey you know what i mean like in this in this scene so uh you know we, we ended up making a record it was like our first kind of hi-fi type record you know where we had a producer and it was sounding good and we spent money in the studio and all this stuff and then you know we're it was like we were on tour with um we we're on tour with the band i don't want to say their name but we we're on tour with a band that was sort of past their prime uh you know they they had they had gone from playing arenas to now playing like these half empty small venues all over the country and you know they were still trying to live that rock star dream they had the bus and all this stuff and just like always talking about like the the glory days and it just depressed me and i was kind of like i don't want to be like i don't want to be a weekend warrior type band or talking about you know, the good old days and kind of just living in the past. And I, I felt like we missed our, we missed our window um, and things have peaked. And even though on the surface, it looked like we were more successful than ever at that point, it just, I knew it was on the decline. And so I, I basically just quit the band and, and started focusing on, you know, the business side of things. That's, that's like, it sounds like that moment in the movie when they're sitting there and you're, and you're looking at the you know the aging rock star and you kind of see your future and you're like that's not my future and yeah exactly that's what it was that, that, that's really amazing that that's like a literal moment I remember sitting in the back of their tour bus and and just like hearing them talk about this arena this way and meanwhile we just played some you know hundred cap room in North Carolina in front of like twenty people and I was like this is fucking depressing man I was like I, I'm not this is not what I'm gonna be. There's, there's, there's going to be the no story of Anvil with uh, with Anne Martinez. <laughs> exactly. So you know, I, I figured whatever. Like you know, I'd I'd, I'd learned the business at that point. Like I, I knew I was smart. I knew what I could do. I had some connections, and so I decided to uh, you know move into the business side of things. Okay. So uh, I mean, and was the I mean. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but like the rest of the band, were they kind of in the same place or was that sort of a. Nah, they were pissed. They, they, okay. they, they were pissed for a long time because it, you know, they felt like, like we're, we're finally doing bigger things. Like what's, why would you quit now? And you know, they just didn't see it. But now, now at this point, they, they, they realized I was right. Okay. So, so what did you do? So how did you, how'd you make that switch? What did you decide you were going to do? Like, did you just say, okay, I know how to do all this stuff. I'm not gonna do it for my band. I'll just do it for others. And then what you found a few bands or did you? Well, I thought, job? I thought it would be easy again, <laughs> but it wasn't. So I had, you know, I had a couple of like false starts, but, uh, so I, you know, I, I, well, hold on. What was the goal here? Was the goal label? Was the goal management? Like, you know, you, you the business side is a pretty, you know, wide space. So like, what were you looking to get into? Uh, initially it was label. Um, you know, so I thought, 
because we'd been doing things independently forever and I, like I kind of knew what was up at that point, I was like, oh, I could start a label and, you know, I, I know how to spot good. Like I would always come across good, good bands and good artists, you know, in my travels and be like, I would know which ones were going to blow up. And so I just figured, oh, you know, it's as easy as signing some bands and putting it out and then it's good. And you, <laughs> you know, then you, then you make it. Um, but uh, it didn't really work that way. So, I, yeah, I tried to start a label. I did start a label. Um, and I signed this local band and they actually were really good. Like they, you know, like the, the, the musical talent wasn't the problem. The problem was, uh, just their dedication to the craft. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, I, I hadn't, that was, I hadn't been really used to that because, you know, my whole music experience to that point on the business side has been being with a bunch of dedicated people that were all just like willing to sacrifice whatever to make it. And even the other bands that we played with, it was all like that. So it's like, I never, I never really come across people that were like, Oh, well I have a job. I can't really like leave it. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You have a job. So what? Fuck your job. Like fucking you like, do you want to make it or not? And you know, and, and it, I realized it's, it wasn't as easy. Like that became uh, sort of a box that needed to be checked in, in order for artists to make it. Whereas like, if they're not dedicated, if they're not willing to sacrifice anything or end everything to make it, then it's not going to work. And so, you know, I was, I was sort of like, uh, you know, just anxious to get something going anyway. So I, yeah, I sort of looked past the initial red flags of like these guys maybe being resistant. And I figured like, all right, well, once they start seeing some things happening, you know, they'll, they'll probably change their minds and they didn't. And so I ended up, you know, basically, putting out this album that flopped and didn't go anywhere and, you know, lost some money on it and then uh, had to go back to the drawing board. That's an interesting lesson. So like, you know, you, you've, you've got a drive to make your business at the time label work and, you, and you're pretty committed to making that happen. And you only want to work with other folks that are equally committed. Otherwise you're kind of spitting your wheels. Yeah. It just won't work. I mean, you know, like no matter how bad the artist's, team or people around them want it if they don't want it just as bad or 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 more then it's not it's really not going to work and that sounds like something that can go both ways i mean uh if you're if you are an artist that has that level of commitment and you are looking around for you know whatever managers labels and whatnot i'm imagining you got to see that same sort of manic drive and belief in in you in them uh or it won't work either on that side too it's like it's like both sides need to have that same commitment i think commitment's the word to really focus on here yeah. Uh, in order to make that happen. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, that's the main, that's like one of the main drivers. And that, and that was also something like, again, even with coming from a sports background, I was always committed, you know what I mean? Like, and I, and nothing came before putting in work, you know what I mean? And, and now is that a competitive thing or is that just like where, you know, cause you make the relationship to sports and in sports, in my mind, that means that's more like the, the drive to win, the drive to beat the other team, that kind of thing. Is it that? Yeah. Well, it's a drive to win, but it's also, you have to put in the work to be good enough to win. Like you got to be in the weight room. You got to be running the laps. You got to be, you know, like pushing yourself always to be better. And that's just how I always approached everything. And and that's, and those were always sort of the people that I was around. So I didn't, you know, and the people that, that didn't have that drive are always the ones that were like fuck ups in life. So, you know, I mean, like, and I saw that just in sports and growing up and stuff like that. So, you know, like that, like, outworking people like hustle trumps talent in a lot of ways. And, and like, even on the music side of things, um, you know, I've learned that dealing with different artists where they may not be the most talented artists or like the best at what they do, but if they, if 
they outwork everyone else, they're probably going to be more successful than the guy who's really talented. That's interesting. I think, yeah, and, and that's got. A, there's so many. There's so many ways that I could point that to. I don't want to get off track too much, but like that's really, really interesting. Particularly from again, if I go to a point back to sort of the you know the environment you were brought up in. You know, like some people are some people are going to make do the work to kind of you know advance, whereas others are just going to stay right. And and and, yeah. and if you're if you're in an environment where you're already kind of among the fortunate, you don't really feel as much of a drive, right? And so I think yeah. that's that's something that people have all the time. So that that's an interesting. Um, point of view but so um so anyway so the record label uh that was the first path but you went you wind up you i think eventually evolved to more of a managerial uh, role or a manager role managerial is a bad word manager role so like how did that how did that take place um well yeah so the record label kind of didn't work out and at this point I, I i still now i needed money because i you know like I had bills to pay and, you know, I, I didn't now didn't have a job. I wasn't playing in a band. So I actually went back to the guys at Razor and Tie and they hooked me up with, uh, I started working at this distribution company in New Jersey called Big Daddy Distribution for a little while. And um, it was just, just a warehouse job, um, literally just picking CDs off a shelf, putting them into a box and shipping them to the stores that ordered them. Um, and it was fucking miserable. I hated it. It was like minimum wage up early in this dusty ass fucking warehouse with like these guys that hated their lives complaining all day. And I, I'm just walking up and down these aisles, picking CDs and packing boxes and shipping them. But you know, a, it was a paycheck and it was steady. You know, like I knew I was always getting my paycheck every week because it was a regular job. Um, but then I started learning from that. Like I started taking home the, the like sales sheets, the one sheets that labels would send to like hype up their upcoming releases and just look at like the the different marketing materials that labels would use or that the stores would want and things like that. And I, you know, so I started using those as blueprints and templates later on for things that I was doing, you know, like in, in, in the management world and like just artists I was working, working with. But, um, you know, while, while I was doing the, the, the big, the big daddy warehouse thing, I just like, I hated it. So I was like trying to, I was like, I got to find something better. So while I was doing that, I was I was hitting up contacts and people that I knew uh, from the band world, and this actually an A and R from Roadrunner who tried to sign us was now at this company called Ferret. He was like a partner over there, and they were you know like a metal label, and but they had some big artists, and they were starting like a management division, and so uh, he offered me a job to come be his assistant um, and learn. You know, he would teach me management. And, uh, you know, I could just learn from there and, and get a paycheck. And so that's what I did. So I quit big daddy, <laughs> started working at ferret, you know, ferret records. They were based in new Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, and th- that was my first experience kind of officially learning management. I had been doing it, you know, the whole time anyway, like as a band, but now I was getting to apply it and kind of see things on a bigger level. Cause like some of the bands that we were dealing with were pretty big, like, you know, lamb of God is a, they were like pretty big bands, um, you know, selling out big rooms on tours and, you know, they had a major label record deal. And so I was kind of seeing how these higher level bands operated and, and just learning from that side of things. And was there any, I just got to ask because you, you, you know, you're talking about the, you know, the metal, a metal label, uh, managing metal bands, you were in a metal band yourself. Was there, the, the, the lessons change based on genre or are they kind of applicable across the board? Because you eventually get more into the hip hop space, which we'll get into in a second, but I just want to kind of get a sense of that. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing is they, the, the rules, 
didn't apply that you weren't able to apply them across genres in, initially, but that was part of my, that was also part of my like model where I was like, no, like you should apply these rules to hip hop. You know what I mean? Like, like hip hop. Okay, so what you're saying is at the time uh, in practice, the rules weren't necessarily crossing border lines or genre lines, but you felt they should be. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like that's, that's what I think gave me uh, just more, not an advantage, but it, it like, you know, when I started getting into the hip hop side of things, like I was approaching it with uh, a lot of the same like rock mentality of like, get, you know, get in a van, go on tour. Like no, no rappers were doing that at that time. This was like 2005, 2000, you know, 2004, 2005. And like the only hip hop stuff that would tour is either, you know, you either were a huge artist, like 50 cent and you were touring arenas and stadiums, or you just didn't tour. You, you did some like club shows or whatever. And it was either you signed to a big label and you had a hit single or else you were some underground like backpack rapper that would never do anything. But I always felt like there's definitely a middle ground. Like, you know what I mean? Like I saw it in, in the, you know, in, in the rock genre and it was like, why wouldn't that be the same here? Um, and so, you know, when I started managing like rappers, the, the, I mean, the main thing that was different was the money, like, like rappers, the, you know, my, I was managing, um, this pretty like big hardcore band, uh, when I was at ferret, they were, you know, they were well-known, like one of the considered like icons of the scene. And they were, uh, you know, they were making like $2,000 a show, which I thought was like, oh, yeah, 2000 thousands. They're making thousands. Um, and then I started managing this rap group when I, when I left ferret, I, I go to crush management and, uh, I started managing this group, the pack and they never played a show in their life. The first show offer they got was ten thousand dollars. I was like, "Holy shit!" I was like, "This is a whole different world." I was like, ten thousand dollars that would that would be like your the the peak of your career on the metal side." You know what I mean? To make ten thousand a night, and these guys are fucking sixteen years old getting ten thousand dollars from some college. I'm like, "This is insane." I've got the scene for Tom Hanks at Big when he opens his uh, opens his paycheck from the shitty company. He's like three hundred twenty four dollars. He's like freaking out. It's so much money. You know, anyway. um, so. But let's just take a quick step back. Crush. Because mm-hmm. um, that feels like, and tell me if I'm wrong, that feels like where this all really, really takes hold for you in, in terms of, of the career. Because now, I mean, I'm sure Ferret was yeah. great, but like Crush is a little bit, you know, a, a much bigger company. So how did that job come about? Yeah, I mean, Ferret was great, you know, because they gave me an opportunity and, and they were, you know, they were a very legit company in that yeah, that sure. scene. But I always knew that that, scene in that genre was there was a ceiling you know even even being in a band in that world like i knew there was a ceiling to what we could do but you know what am i gonna do like my, my thing is sort of i'll always yeah. u- use what tools are at my disposal to kind of like maximize that and figure out how to pivot into something bigger so like it never was like the end-all be-all for me regardless like i knew like eventually i sure. did so so with crush you know they were already sort of like a big company operating with, you know, they had platinum artists and success and all that kind of stuff. So when I had the chance to go over, well, actually the first time I had a chance to go over there earlier and I, I turned it down um, again, be trying to be too smart for my own good, but it, it, it sort of ended up working out. But at the time it was like, they offered me to come to crush and manage this group gym class heroes. And, yeah. you know, I was sort of, cause they were like, you know, we, so the guy, one of the, the partners in crush, Bob McClinn, he used to be in a band that we toured with 
And the reason why he got his job at Crush was because he managed my band at the very end of our. He's the one that got us to deal with Razor and Tie, and he managed. Okay. So, so he, you know, like again, I, I'd been self managing forever. It was sort of like, all right, like we need to change it up. And and Bob was about to start his management career, and and he was like you know, you guys are good. You should let me manage you. And at that point I'd been kind of like less resistant. Cause I'm like, let me, you know, let me try and shake it up. So I let him the, the like the first, uh, the last maybe six months, eight months of our career, he managed us, but he, you know, he got us, he got us this record deal, which was decent money. He got us an RV, you know, like from the record deal, some, some shit like that. It was, it was like a smart, like he was a smart manager. Um, but he, he was applying for this job at crush. And, this, and like the reason, like, he got the job is because he had us as a client. He, yeah, he was pointing to you as like a bullet yeah. point on his resume. He gets the job, and yeah. I don't know how and, many and years later, Crush at that time wasn't big. Like they had um, yeah. like American Hi-Fi, I think, and they had like their biggest clients were American Hi-Fi and Meadow Soprano. And, <laughs> and so, so at the time, I remember like I was like playing that up to you know because the Sopranos were huge at the time. So I was like, sure. yo, our manager. I, 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 I remember when she did that single too. That's hilarious. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, yeah, you know, our management company they got metal soprano. They, got, you know, and it, it just seemed like it made us sound bigger. But uh, I, I, I remember Jersey as it gets right there. I think. But being on that last tour, I remember Bob called me. And he sent me, he was like, yo, check out this band that I'm about to start managing. Let me know what you think. And it was Fallout Boy. And so he sent me the, the the album and I was like, I was like, I don't know, this sucks, man. I told I was like, but I was so mad because I was like, this band is going to be so fucking big. And then I was like, and then he's going to forget about us and, you know, all that kind of shit. So, so I was like, ah, it was all right. But I was, I was secretly hating on them. Um, and then Fallout Boy ends up becoming like the fucking biggest band in the world. And, and, you know, that sort of set everything off for Crush where it's like, Fallout Boy, then Panic at the Disco, Gym Class Series, like all these, you know, now they're a huge company. And so I, I've been at Ferret now for a little while. And Bob was like, he knew I always was into hip hop and they wanted to start, you know, they, they, they were always getting different labels sending them hip hop acts, but they were like, we don't know anything about hip hop. So like, we need someone who knows this shit to come in here and manage. And so they offered me to manage Gym Class Heroes at the time. And I, I, I was like, nah, like, I don't really like them. You know, but it was also they were offering me a shitty deal. Like that was part of it. Like the 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 way that they worked their splits at the time was I was I was technically making more money at Ferret than I would have off of like a platinum act at Crush. So I was kinda like, ah, no. You know, I tried to get a bigger percentage. They they said no. So then I ended up not going there. And then Gym Class Heroes ends up becoming like now I'm hearing Gym Class Heroes on the radio every five seconds when I'm in the car. I'm like, Jesus, man, I should have fucking did I was so mad. Cause, you know, I'm still trying to make it and now like i could have been managing this group that's blowing up and you know all that sort of stuff so like that was a regret at the time um but then about you know uh, six to eight months later uh they hit me back they had this other group called the pack who was signed to jive and they were like these four kids from the bay area that were like these skater rappers and you know they were like you know you want to come manage them so at this point i'm like i don't give a fuck what they ask me i'm i'm going there i'm managing whoever the fuck it is i don't care so i end up leaving ferret start managing this, this group the pack um who really were like a very influential like group that like like underrated in a way where people like almost without the pack there'd be no like 
ASAP Rocky. There'd be no fucking Little Yachty. There'd be no like all the new wave rap that is out is like the the pack were the forefathers of this. And and part of uh, the problem managing them was like they were signed to Jive, which was a very you know major label, very poppy kind of like radio hit driven type uh, company. And the, this group was like this left of center you know, these skateboarders from the Bay area, these fucking like rappers, they're rapping about vans that there's the song about vans, sneakers. And it was like a viral song before viral was a thing. Like this, this song became fucking huge on the internet. Rolling Stone ranked it as like the number four song of the year that year. And it was this like, no, this was like totally new type of hip hop where it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, street, like ghetto, like hard in that way. But it, they were like kids from the hood, but they were talking about like fucking skateboarding and like weird shit. And uh, I I just thought they were amazing. And, and um, it was just so hard to get people to pay attention because they were doing something different. And, you know, I remember, I, I remember I even had a call with Vans at the time trying to get Vans to sponsor them. And, you know, Van, Vans basically told me like, we don't believe in, focusing marketing on the urban market like we they, like they basically said like the urban market is is fad driven and we want to be classic like chuck taylor so we're not going to sponsor a rap group and i'm like yeah but you don't understand because at the time i was seeing kids like from harlem you know like black kids wearing vans and skateboarding like like people thought like skating was just like this white thing but i started to see all these like kids from the hood skateboarding and, and dressing like skaters and you know doing shit so I, I saw it coming, but you know, like, yeah, Vans shot us down. Basically, we're like, no, we don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't sell to the urban market. And I, I was like, shit, that's fucking racist. But um, you know, then a couple of years later, all of a sudden, they're sponsoring Odd Future, and you know, now all they do is fucking hip hop. But you know, but it's it's just funny how like everything has changed. But at sure. the at the time when I was doing this, you know, hip hop was this new wave of hip hop. No one understood and it really was a lot like rock to me. And so, you know, we book tours, you know, get these guys in a van, they play little venues and, you know, they'd be sleeping in fucking hotels on the floor, like all crammed in a room is very not hip hop, you know, and, and they loved it. You know what I mean? And, and they were building a fan base and that's sort of the approach that I took with shit that no one was doing at the time. Um, and then, you know, a few years later you start to see, like South by Southwest became all hip hop and it's all these young rappers that are in vans and kind of playing small venues. It became a much more like punk rock feel. And that I like, that just seems so natural to me, you know? I love that. I mean, I love that whole idea of like uh, what, you know, people think only certain things work in one genre can't work in the other and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's still music and it's still business and it's still fans and it's still connection. And it's just a matter of, of, of cutting all those dots, maybe a little bit of tweaking, you know, but the, yeah, the, I mean, there's general. different, like there's, you know, there's some things that, you know, you got to kind of like tweak and adapt, but overall I think certain approaches, you know, it can work. And, and like, I'm a big believer in like, almost going against the grain as an approach because it separates you. Yeah. I've noticed, <laughs> <laughs> which is good. Right. But let me ask you this. So you, so you're, you're working with the pack and, and whatnot, but what is, I mean, I, I, I could just bring it up, I guess, uh, specifically, but like there was an artist that you, I don't know if you discovered or you, or how that worked, but there was, there was one particular artist while you were at crush that really kind of yeah. kind of made it all happen. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Tyga, so, uh, you know, Tyga was sort of like my big, um, in a way, I guess a big break. Um, 
but you know, there's a whole bunch of twists and turns to that story too. But so, so Tiger <laughs> ended up, he, he saw Travi McCoy from gym class heroes in flight club, the sneaker store in LA and gave him his like mixtape. Um, and then Travi gave it to me and was like, yo, you should check this kid out. Like he gave me his mixtape. Like he looked cool, whatever. And so, you know, the mixtape, <laughs> I remember it was called young on probation and it was, I mean, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't that good. Um, but I, I, like, I'm still hungry and trying to find an opportunity. And so I'm like, fuck it. Like, you know, if Travi likes him, we could, I could use that as like leverage to, to get him opportunities. So, you know, like I'll, I'll do it. Um, and the crazy part too, is at the time on that mixtape was Kendrick Lamar, Schoolboy Q, like all, all the big LA rappers, J-Rock, like all the TDE guys that ended up becoming huge. They were all kind of friends with each other and just on this fucking mixtape together that were just like unsigned artists just kind of fucking around. And, um, you know, Tyga, even though like as a rapper, I didn't really think he was like that good. Um, you know, he, at the time, um, he, he had like a, it factor. You know what I mean? Like when I met him, he was a 16 year old kid, but he just looked famous. He had this aura about him. Like he, you know, he just, he had it, he had like the swag. So I was like, all right, well shit, I could, I could work with this. So we, we basically concocted this whole story, said that Travi McCoy was his cousin. Um, you know, <laughs> started using that to try and, because gym class heroes were blowing up. So I, I figured that would get him some looks. And, and so we started using that to get him some press, but then, uh, it, it kind of worked against him because he started to try and become like more poppy. Like, you know, his early stuff was more pop leaning. And so like all the rap blogs and all that shit at that time fucking hated him. They, they, they would just make fun of him and you know, all, like it just, it wasn't, it wasn't working, but you know, we just, we just kept grinding, kept building. <laughs> That's And so, and so like, I guess when it comes down to the whole idea of at that point, had you learned that lesson of, um, get in the door first. Like, I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I'm getting from the interview is this idea of like, you know, don't talk yourself out of a good deal too early. Right. Yeah. And and you got to apply that to your clients as well as yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm always like, it's yeah. Get your foot in the door and figure it out as you go. Like I, I'm like, I'm always like, let's just do it and we'll work it out as we go. But I'm never going to like get too into the weeds before we're doing something together because it like, like it, it ends up working against you. You end up like not, you, you cut off your own opportunities. So like, I like to get people sort of like pregnant with the idea first and then we, then we'll figure it out as we go. Um, and so that's always the way I've operated in, in the way that like, even when with my clients, like if there was a certain potential deal or brand or something, you know, something that may not be like on the surface, like, Oh, I don't know. I'm just like, listen, just, just, see where it goes. Like, let's, you know, play along until we get in there and then kind of figure it out. And then, you know, it usually works out. And that's, you know, I've always been able to, uh, like hustle up is more opportunities than pretty much anyone else because I like, that's my approach. Like I, I, I'm always like, how, how can we do it? Don't tell me, don't tell me the reasons why we can't do a deal or don't tell me like all the things wrong with it. Tell me what's right with it. Tell me what we can do. And like, there's always going to be a middle ground. Like we're going to figure out, some sort of way that we can meet in the middle and everyone's happy. That's interesting. And what I liked about, uh, there was another interview I heard uh, you uh, do on another podcast, where it was talking about, it's always about trying to get the, um, trying to get that bag. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of a left a, a left yeah. turn in the in the interview here a little bit because we're kind of getting low on time, unfortunately. But yeah. I got to I got to know what 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 is where does that come from and and how was that like an operational philosophy for you? Because I think that's really funny. Um, but also interesting. Like I don't mean funny as it like a joke, but like it's 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 funny, but it's but it's prescient as well. Yeah, I mean, we're in the music business. You know, what I mean, the the business part of it is, can't be forgotten. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole way that uh, anyone can. It, it enables the business side of it enables you to be able to do what you love for a living. So you have to pay attention to the business as well. So if you're not making money, like this is not a fucking hobby or a game. Like we might be doing things that are fun or cooler than you know if you were just working in some cubicle at some office job but it still has to be profitable there's still you still have to be making money for it to make sense and probably even more so in this world because again like to to get to a certain like most people just look at this like oh that's not a real job it's fucking music business you know as an aspiring artist or as whatever like no one sees this as a real job so almost <laughs> that makes it even more important for you to show that you can make money off it so that people kind of like get off your back and let you do what you got to do. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, like money definitely has to be a consideration in everything you do because it, it, it is a business, you know, you do have to walk the line as to, you know, what is, uh, anything that may potentially compromise the art side of it. But if there's a way to get both, that's, that's my, that's, that's the path that I look for. Right. And now we didn't even get into the commission record stuff and we'll have to save that for I think another time. But like uh, this, what I want to know from the management point of view that you were, that you were doing, cause that was really kind of your, your calling card. Was that something that your clients wanted? Was it, was, was that a, ever a struggle with your clients in that you're focused on, you know, to your point, the bag, right. You know, making sure that they're, that they're getting the money they need to sustain their careers. Was there, was, was that what they wanted you to do and, and to focus on, or was there any point where they feeling like maybe you needed to be more, I don't know, uh, in tune with their creative component as well. Like I, I'm, I'm curious as to what they look for. Uh, yeah. for as a I manager. mean, there's definitely moments where, well, that that's part of that is like, because I came from the artist side, like you can't bullshit me. Like, you know what I mean? Like I know, like, you know what I mean? Like this is not some fucking arts. Like you're not, you're not some fucking artist, bro. Like, honestly, like, you know what I mean? Like, like none of the, like there's certain artists that are, that are artists that you just, it doesn't matter what they do, like, because they're so, you know, fucking amazing, unique, iconic talents that like, you know, but even those, even those type artists are, are secretly very focused on the business side. They just, it doesn't play into their character. So, so it's all, it's all sort of like a farce for everyone. Um, and so, you know, you'll get these artists that are, that think they're more artistic than they really are. And it's like, bro, like you're talking about fucking strippers and fucking titties. What are you talking? Like, you don't you're like you're going to tell me this doesn't like this isn't in line with your art. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? So, you know, like at a certain point, I'll call bullshit on, on some of these artists. The fact of like, you know, if they if they try and act holier than thou about certain things. Um, but it, it usually comes because of success. You know, what I mean, like like I've always found that when the artists are you know, when they're young and hungry, they're down to put in the work and do a lot of the things that, you know, they need to do. And, and opportunities are, you know, everything's appreciated. It's great. Like there's all sorts of, you know, like loyalty and love, but then once artists become successful, they do get a little, you know, like I've found a lot of them do become a little kind of like lax or, you know, 
just complacent in their situation. And then they'll start to turn down some of the opportunities just because of like, ah, it's not, ah, it's kind of a hassle. I don't really want to do it. And, you know, like that sort of thing starts to happen. And that's when artists fall off, honestly. Interesting. Well, listen, this has been a, this is a really interesting, I mean, I love the arc that we have here. I mean, you've gone from, you know, from performing artist to, to manager. And like I said, we didn't get into the label stuff, but that could be another time you went from sort of this hardcore, you know, you know, Jersey scene, you know, um, punk rock, hard rock type of thing to a hip hop manager. Like, I mean, and just watching those arcs happen, but the thing is there's, there's these threads that remain constant throughout them that, uh, are really the ones that are the, are the most important to focus on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, don't don't uh, don't block yourself from getting in the door first, right? Get in the door first before you start uh, into the details. And the other one, of course, is which we've always heard is that hustle. You know, hustle. I think it was hustle. Uh, uh, Trump's talent was that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Hustle, hustle Trump's talent, and uh, don't rock the boat before you get in the boat. <laughs> Don't rock the boat so much you can't even get out of it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, listen, uh, any any other uh, closing thoughts before we before we wrap it up here today? I think this has been really insightful. Um, no. I mean, you know, it's a it's some like I often I don't I don't really like think about the past or talk about the past much, so it's just kind of fun to reminisce. Kind of, yeah, reminisce and go through some of these memories and it, it, you know, it's it's actually a little bit you know, it's a little bit of a enlightening enlightenment to to for me too so it's kind of you know we should do a part two and, and get into the we're, the we're, second half of everything exactly and I, the thing is a lot of people i talk to do say that they're like yeah i haven't thought about this stuff in forever but it's trying to draw when you, when you try to connect those early days experiences to what you're doing now and, and to see that clearly i mean it's great that you see that but I, but that's the whole point of this podcast is for others to to, to realize that there are things they're doing right now even if they haven't broken through that, there's things they're doing right now that are going to form these bedrock foundational components of who they're going to be later on and to sort of pay attention to that and to see is to benefit from the hindsight of other folks that have been to where they want to go and to kind of maybe help them more clearly see where those opportunities might lie. And I think that's, that's the whole point of what we're doing here. Yeah. So I'm no, glad you found yourself some of it. Like nothing is a wasted, nothing is a, a loss or, or, or a waste of time if you could, get a lesson out of it. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Like even, even though, I, you know, there might be a lot of people that are in bands or whatever, and it's like, you know, they may not go where they want to go, but you've, you've spent time doing that. You've gained a certain amount of expertise and there's a way for you to turn that into something else if you want to, you know what I mean? And it's sort of just being able to see, kind of see the, the, from 30,000 feet, you know, where you've been and what you, what you could do with that moving forward. Okay, cool. Well, listen, uh, thanks very much. We definitely will do a part two. I know how to get a hold of you, so that's pretty easy. All right. And, uh, <laughs> You've just listened to another episode of the Big Break Podcast. The Big Break is brought to you by Royalty Exchange, an online marketplace matching artists with investors. If you'd like to see if there's an investor interested in your music catalog, simply connect your PRO account to our platform for an instant analysis. Once connected, you can start reviewing offers immediately, or if you like, you can test the marketplace by setting your own asking price. Artists have raised more than $81 million debt-free through the Royalty Exchange marketplace without giving away any of their rights. We provide the financial security you need to achieve full artistic freedom. Visit www.royaltyexchange.com today. I've been your host, Anthony Bruno. Please check the show notes to learn how to follow me or this week's guest. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this show, please drop us a line at press at royaltyexchange.com. Many thanks to our producer, John Jestel, our audio engineer, David Burns, and to the entire songwriter community for continuing to put your hearts and souls into the music we all love. 
Thanks for listening. 